Hello, this is David Diga Hernandez, and you're listening to the Praise Chapel Paramount podcast. I'm joining in the series, Giants Must Fall, by giving you a list of 10 common strongholds that many people have trouble overcoming. I know you're going to hear something in this message that challenges you to seek after the freedom that God has for you. Excited to be here with you, my home church, Praise Chapel Paramount. As you can tell, I am not Pastor Omar. He is up in Northern California supporting one of our churches out there, and uh, he will be back with us later this week, but um, I'll be filling in for him today as best I can. I know those are big shoes to fill, but uh, we'll do our best without him, okay, for now. But pray for him as he's up there in Northern California. Uh, We honor him. We love him. And then uh, with me here today, of course, Mr. Stephen Moctezuma is going to be giving us some atmosphere. Um, really, music is very important, I think. It's a, it's, it's a biblical truth that music helps to set a spiritual atmosphere. I don't know if you notice this, but whenever you listen to music, music opens the soul. And whatever lyrics you're listening to with that music actually fall in deeper because you're opening yourself up. This is why it's so powerful. So I think it's very important to have people who are anointed in worship to partner with you as you minister the word. So Mr. Moctezuma is going to be led of the Lord there. But I want to talk to you this morning about this idea of giants that need to fall. And Goliath must fall is our theme. And I really appreciate this concept, this idea that it's inevitable that whatever it is that you're facing is going to come down. Now, last Wednesday, I covered a little bit of this idea of the miraculous. I talked about breakthrough, and I talked about the walls of Jericho coming down. There was just two Wednesdays ago, and I talked about how your miracle is on the other side of your breakthrough, and that all that needs to happen is a sudden miracle. God could turn it around, and everything suddenly becomes different. Then a few Sundays ago, I also talked about the idea that our guilt and shame are things that God wants to break off of us. So I won't be covering necessarily the topic of miracles specifically. I won't be covering the giant of guilt and shame, though that could be a whole series just on talking about guilt and shame. What I'm going to talk about this morning are 10 different giants that need to come down in your life. And these giants, they represent obstacles, they represent things in our lives that really are taunting us, that are, they're, they're stubborn, they're sticking with us, they're things that we can't quite rid ourselves of without the power of God. So lift your hands all across this room, say, Holy Spirit, help me receive, give me breakthrough, set me free, let the word go deep and have impact. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, look up at me. We're going to go through this. Oh, what was that? I thought that was like an angel feather and like the glory of God is, I I thought we were going to have a whole different service right now. (laughs) Be honest, no, that would have freaked me out. Um, (laughs) So the first giant I want to talk to you about this morning, and this is somewhat of a cliche, and I think that in a series like this, you have to at some point talk about this because it's such a common issue But I want to talk to you, number one, the giant of fear. Now, there's an interesting theory concerning David and Goliath, the familiar story. Many of us know it. Most of us do. And if you don't, in a nutshell, it's basically an Israelite who went up against the giant with a slingshot. Nobody thought anyone could take down the giant, but he takes him down. But some Bible scholars have this interesting theory concerning the David and Goliath story. And it's really non-traditional, but it's an interesting thought nonetheless. 
And what some of them theorize is that Goliath actually wasn't as much of a threat as people imagined him to be. They believe that Goliath actually had a physical disorder that caused him to be so large. And what caused him to be so large also is what caused him impairment in his vision. So Goliath, they believe, was actually a very sick and weak individual, which is why he had to battle with people closely. Now you notice when Goliath calls out to someone to battle, he says, bring them to me. And he needed to battle at a close distance, otherwise he couldn't see them very, very well. And so he's slow, he can't see very well, and King David, or at the time the shepherd David, comes with his sling, and he was actually quite well trained with that sling. Those slingers could actually fire so quickly that it would kill people, and it was considered a weapon of war. They were very, very accurate from very long distances, and they had a powerful speed and a powerful uh, momentum that would go behind the stones that would be flung from their sling. Their, their sling. I don't know if you've ever seen a kid with a slingshot. Nowadays, everybody has, uh, I'm sure there's an app with a slingshot on it, but like, I remember I, I, used, to, I used to see some, one of my friends had a slingshot. And it was actually kind of scary, and that was a toy. I would try to avoid that guy because he was just firing off on everybody. But a sling is actually a very powerful weapon. So the advantage actually was, some scholars believe, I don't know if I necessarily believe this, but it's a possibility that the advantage actually went to King David and not to Goliath. So here's the truth about the giant. The giant had an appearance of a threat, but was actually not a threat much like fear. So this giant of fear in your life causes you to have anxiety, causes you to have hesitation, causes you to be apprehensive about what the future might hold. But really, there is no power in that which it's threatening you with. So this power of the enemy that he uses over you, this fear, actually causes you to create boundaries for yourself. Your world becomes smaller. Your limits become more intense. You become bound in fear. You're, you don't move. You don't do anything because of your, you're afraid of what might happen if you step out. What might become of your life if you make a greater commitment. What might come upon you if you should take that greater responsibility. Some of you are afraid to start that business. Some of you are afraid to write that book. Some of you are afraid to go and apologize to that family member. Some of you are afraid to step out into what you believe God has for you because you're imagining what could go wrong instead of believing for what God can do and what God can perform in your life. And so fear causes you to imagine often the worst case scenario. Fear will cause you to imagine what could go wrong in that specific instance when most likely it's actually not going to happen. But even, even so, even if your greatest fear were to come true, even if that thing you imagine, that, that thing you just don't want to happen, even if that were to occur, you would still be okay. You see, I overcome fear when I recognize that even if the worst should ever happen to me, I'm still in the hands of God, and God is still in control. They, they did this psychological study on people who had experienced some, some life-altering accident to where they were physically impaired or where they were wheelchair-bound or bed-bound for the rest of their lives, and they found that people who had experienced this sort of tragedy were actually happier than people who hadn't on average. Now, I'm not saying that that's what makes you happy. What actually they discovered was that many of these individuals 
because they were forced into a situation where they had to make a choice on which mindset they would carry, they actually discovered the art of happiness and the fact that it doesn't rest on anything that's exterior, but that it's a mindset and an attitude. So some of you are so afraid of losing things. Some of you are so afraid of loss that you actually don't live. Some of you are so afraid of stepping out. Some of you are so, I mean, there, there are people who live with crippling fears that don't let them leave the house, that don't let them talk to people, that don't let them try anything new. And here's the reality. Could you get hurt? Yeah, probably. And one of the things that freaks me out, I mean, I try to always, can, you guys know I've been very open about this. I get nervous on airplanes still. It's just so unnatural. I don't belong in the sky. I don't belong up there. Like this, this giant thing, it just, I mean, I, I go. I don't let it control my life, but I'm still very nervous. I don't understand all the dynamics of how it works. And one of the things that freaks me out is despite all the statistics that people tell me, oh, you know, statistically, you're most likely not to die in a car accident. I'm like, okay, great. Now I'm afraid on my way to the airport. I'm afraid when I'm on the plane. And here's the reality. Everyone who's ever been in a plane crash probably recited those statistics to themselves anyway. So here's the reality. Yeah, something tragic may happen, may not. But that fear that's keeping you in this place of inactivity, that fear that's keeping you in this, this place where you do nothing for God, you do nothing for yourself, you do nothing for your loved ones, is actually intimidating you with the reality that might not happen. And even if it did happen, you could still have the joy of the Lord. You could still have strength. You could still have peace. There's nothing that can... Hear. Here's the reality. The believer is untouchable, not in the sense that things don't happen to us, but that we ultimately have the victory over these things no matter what it is. So, so you may experience tragedy, and even if you were to experience the worst of your fears, which is death. Hey, I wake up in heaven and it doesn't matter what happens to me. I'm untouchable. What can, what can, what can men do to me? What can the devil do to me? What can anyone in this world do to me when I know the one who breathed life into me and holds my soul? That's the power of recognizing who I belong to. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 30 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. It's impossible to be bound by fear when your focus is on what God can do and who he is. It's impossible to be bound by fear when you recognize to whom you belong. It's impossible to be bound by fear when you trust in God. There's nothing that can happen to you that God cannot work out. There's nothing that can happen to you that God can't turn for the better. There's nothing that can happen to you that can take your salvation, that can take you from the love of God, or take his presence from your life. There's nothing... So to overcome fear, we mustn't live in denial and say, nothing ever bad will happen to me because I'm special and Jesus loves me. No. We overcome fear by recognizing that even if the worst does happen, I still belong to God. I still have my salvation. I still have the love of the Father. I still have his presence living in me. And that is the, really the key to overcoming fear, is stepping out into that greater commitment. We often create for ourselves the most ideal scenarios, the perfect way we want things. And we're afraid sometimes not just of rejection. We're afraid of commitment. We're afraid of having to give more of ourselves. We're afraid of throwing things off balance. It seems like just when you get things balanced in your life, God requires more from you. And someone said, oh, yeah, I agree with that. Isn't that the truth? Or, or, or just when you dealt with a sin in your life, God says, okay, now we deal with this one. So, so fear will keep you from reaching out. Fear will keep you from taking that step. Can I, just, can I just be straight with you? You need to write that book. You need to start that business. You need to make that phone call. 
You need to step out. You need to do that thing that God placed on your heart. I, I may not list it here, but it's that thing you're thinking about right now. It's that thing that you're, you, you kind of feel, you feel even uneasy because I'm talking about it and you're thinking, oh my gosh, am I actually thinking about doing this? That's the thing that you should do. That fear can be overcome when you stand up to that giant and step out despite what fear tells you. Number two, another giant that people deal with is depression. Now, the symptoms of depression uh, can vary both in, in, in what they're manifestations are and also the intensity there are some people who battle with what's called clinical depression and I, I, I understand it there are experts they have names for these things and then there are those who just battle with momentary sadness I mean I don't think it's necessarily depression when you lose a loved one and and you go into this place that that's natural that's not demonic I mean if the Bible says Jesus wept and I think the danger is that there's such a stigma surrounding this topic. We label people who suffer with depression or anxiety as being less spiritual than those who don't. And because we label them that way, they hide in shame and they never can really talk about it because they're afraid of being misjudged. We say, okay, well, if you have depression, you have a demon. Not necessarily. Well, you're talking to someone. I'm, 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 I'm telling you, I believe in the demonic. You, you've seen me cast out devils. It's a lot of fun. And you should try it more often. I believe in the demonic. You guys know my heart. But I'm telling you, there are some people who battle these things, and they're not battles with the demonic. They're battles with the flesh. Now, when I say battles with the flesh, I'm not saying they're in sin. I'm saying they're in the flesh. That's a big difference. Every time you sin, you're in the flesh, but not every time you're in the flesh do you sin. The flesh is simply living in another, according to another reality or mindset or attitude, putting on a different perspective in life that causes you to lose faith, that causes you to lose joy or peace. You're in the flesh when you're afraid. You're in the flesh when you're tired. You're in the flesh when you're hungry. That's why fasting helps because it puts you in the training ground, makes you hungry, and makes you practice and deal with the flesh. If you can have peace and patience in traffic while you're fasting, you can have peace and patience when you're not fasting and you're full. So, so the flesh really is just the manifestation of self, its ego, its, its personality, its, its, its will, its, its emotion, its who I am. Now, there's no sin in will. There's no sin necessarily in emotion, for the Bible says, be angry and sin not. So it's not a, it's not a sin to have emotion, but, but sometimes the enemy can hijack our emotions. Sometimes the enemy can take what would be a normal response to a tragedy, depression, and antagonize it, intensify it, and prolong it. You hear what I said? This is key for those of you dealing with this. Sometimes the enemy can take what would be a natural emotion, and he can intensify and prolong it. And then use your life's circumstances to get you to believe the lie. Sometimes the enemy will use your emotions to endorse his lies. So he'll use when he'll lie to you and say you are alone and take that feeling of depression, that feeling of being alone and say, here's your reality. Now live in it. He will use your emotions to endorse his lies. And this is why the giant of depression is so difficult, because those who've dealt with depression, you know, it's like being in sinking sand. It's like being in quicksand. You're going down. There's nowhere to grab. And the more you try to move and get out of it, the faster you sink. That's what it can feel like. It can feel like this weight, this heaviness, this sense of loneliness, this darkness, this, this, this sense of impending doom, this idea that nothing else matters. And in fact, those who suffer with it severely often report 
for it, having no emotion whatsoever. They feel void of anything at all, like nothing has any taste or life to it. And they go through life like a zombie with no purpose, and they are frustrated with it. They don't want to be in depression. They can't just snap out of it. It's ignorant to say, hey, just snap out of it. You'll be fine. But, well, it's ignorant to tell them that you should just snap out of it. That's ignorance. That they, there's no such thing with depression. If that were possible, like, like, that, like you're going to tell them that, they're going to go, oh, is that all I have to do? All these years I've suffered with it. Oh, my goodness, I'll just not be depressed. No, no, that's not the reality. So, so it, it's not the reality that they can just snap out of it. But here's, here's the flip side of that. It's also not the reality that prayer doesn't work. I've heard preachers say, you know, you can't just pray away depression. I've heard preachers say, well, you know, you can still love Jesus and depression could still completely control your life. And can I just be honest with you? They're wrong. The Bible says this. Psalm 1611, thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. This sort of giant is really an issue with the flesh. And again, I don't want to attach a stigma to that. I don't want you to make, make you feel less spiritual. But here's the reality. You will notice that whenever you are more in the flesh, meaning you're not praying as much as you should be, meaning you're not in the word as much as you should be, you will notice the negative emotions of the flesh begin to dominate your life. The same goes for anger. Anger and depression are actually very closely related. Men actually express, more often than women do, men actually express their depression by their anger. And they, they, basically, they're, they're lashing out out of a hatred for themselves. We're going deep this morning, okay? So, so that giant is a really complicated one. And it's easy to say, Lord, I want to go through all the little, you know, like we just did Christmas decoration. My wife loves to decorate, like, Every year we keep getting a bigger place to live, but then she fills it with more things. And I don't think, I don't think we'll ever catch up. But, but there's, there's sometimes we bring the lights up. They're all tangled. And, and have you ever had to sit there and have to untangle something? And you, wanna, you don't know where to begin. Well, where does this go? This goes to here and this is there. And that's sometimes what it can be like with our emotions and our thoughts. Everything's just all tangled. And, and, and here's what you want to do. You want to sit there and sort through every emotion and sort through every thought and get an answer to every question. And God says, okay, I don't want to untangle that thing in your heart. I just want to give you a new heart. So you're trying to process all that. And that's partly why you're stuck in the past, because you'll never understand why certain things happen. You're not going to get an answer. That's why the response, not the answer, but the response to the things we don't understand is trust. Because trust says, I don't need to know the answer because I know your nature. And I know you're good. And I know I can trust you. So, so, so stop trying to untangle everything and just give it to Jesus. Stop trying to sort through every little issue. And just give it to Jesus. This is why people who suffer with depression are also prone to bitterness. Because when someone makes a comment to them, they have to sort through, well, what did they really mean by that? And then you become entangled in this bitterness that you begin to develop toward other people when it's based upon your own reasoning and your own entangling within your emotions, and you don't even realize it. You're stuck in that place. And God says, just let it go. 
Now, I know that's easier said than done, but that's the answer. And it would be cruel of me to tell you that God doesn't have the answer for you. It would be cruel of me to say to you, this is not the proper response. I'm giving you the truth. The truth is give it to Jesus and stop trying to do it yourself. That's number two. Number three. Now, this one we're really going to get deep. Turn, turn to somebody and say, we're going there. Oh, Lord, help me. And those of you watching live, don't you dare take this out of context. Anything I say, you leave everything as it is. I already know. Some people take my stuff from the Internet, and they just make their own story with it. I don't know. I guess any view is a good view, right? <laughs> Number three is witchcraft. Now, when I say witchcraft, you likely imagine somebody sitting in front of a cauldron, dropping in different elements of a potion and chanting and sacrificing animals and all these occultic images. But, but that, that really is a part of witchcraft, yes, but there are, there are multiple different purposes of witchcraft. One of them is to obtain power uh, or to worship the enemy. That's the second one. Uh, really, but the ultimate goal of witchcraft, this is, this is, the, this is the, the focus of witchcraft. This is what they try to do. Witchcraft really is all about trying to control people. But we're going there. This is a giant that has to come down in your life. I mean, I'm talking about to where you think it's, you know how you know you, you have an issue with control? is when a preacher's preaching and you hear something that somebody next to you should hear and you elbow them as if you're the Holy Spirit. It's when you make them listen to a certain part hoping, see, that's you, that, that, that's you, that's you. You're not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will tell them, that's you. It's this idea that, that, we, we, that, that people are our projects. And, and here's the reality. Sometimes in ministry, we can be guilty of this. We treat people like property instead of people. Well, that's my guy. That's my girl. That's my disciple. I, I decide. And, and you take it personal when they don't listen to you. And so you lash out with more restraint. I'm preaching this now, okay? See... See, see, I, I, this is something that a lot of, it could save you a lot of trouble, especially if you plan to go into ministry. You'll never be able to control people. Your job is to, you're, you're God's authority, yes, but you cannot take the blame upon yourself as if it's in your power to decide for them. And that frustration will eat away at you because people aren't responding the way you think they should. You take it personal. Well, I'm not anointed enough. I'm not persuasive enough. Look, if the Holy Spirit couldn't convince them, what makes you think you can? So we need to just let go of the idea that we have to control people. Now, this can manifest itself in many different ways. In fact, it even manifests itself in marriage. Men tend to use witchcraft in the manifestation of, of being intimidating. Men use intimidation, and this is a general statement. I'm going to explain why it can be the other way around sometimes. Generally speaking, for all the... The modern feminists who would get upset if I, if I word it wrong. Generally speaking, men use intimidation. Women use manipulation. Thank you. <laughs> Thinking about this now. So what is witchcraft? I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But think about the fact that the prophet Elijah, 
was able to call down fire from heaven. He sees the power of God devour his enemies. He stood before kings and spoke boldly before them, declaring the truth of the word of God. He stood before armies declaring the word of God. No worry, nations were after him. He was, he was a wanted man, and he would just kind of roam around because he knew the Lord would take him. Yet, when this woman named Jezebel sends out this decree saying that if you're not, that I, I, I swear that you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow, all of a sudden, he, he just completely implodes and he finds himself in a depression and he's sad and he's sorrowful and he's just saying, I wish I was dead. Nobody else loves God but me. Now, what was it about that woman's decree that did that? I doubt it was the woman herself. And you know, I'm just going to, I hate to break it to you, but there's not really a demonic spirit who wears a dress whose name is Jezebel. It's not like in hell, like you're going to go around and sing all these, and then there's one that's in a dress, and oh, that's Jezebel. That's the woman demon. No, no, no. And I think that we kind of get our demonology mixed up a little bit. All right, so yeah, that's the spirit of Jezebel. Yeah, and she's omnipresent everywhere at all times, manifesting and working in all parts of the world. No, that's not how it works. What, what, what people mean when they say the spirit of Jezebel, what they mean is that that person is operating in a demonic spirit that's similar to the kind of demonic spirit that Jezebel operated in. And what that means is that they use, think about it, she, she brought in all sorts of witchcraft, the worship of other gods, and she influenced her husband to bring that into the kingdom. And now here she is, she's speaking to a prophet of God. Why was it that he was gripped with fear? Why was it that he was broken down? Because she used witchcraft, because there was a demonic influence behind her words. You know you're under witchcraft when people speak to you and you feel like you're breaking down. I know it's getting intense, but, but this is how you do it. You expose enemies, and when you expose the enemy, you give people the opportunity to defeat the enemy. So, so here's the reality. If, if you speak, you're speaking to people and, and they feel deflated, after speak, do they feel tired? Do they feel heaviness on themselves? Do they feel guilty about just being themselves? Then you're operating in a spirit of witchcraft. Now, the reason men use intimidation and women use manipulation is because people who use intimidation typically see themselves as the more dominant one. Whereas people who use manipulation know they're the weaker one, so they have to kind of weave their way through it. And here's the reality. Some of you have learned manipulation because you've gone through abuse. Some of you have learned manipulation because you were weak and put in situations where you were taken advantage of. And because you've constantly been pushed around, you had to develop a strategy for getting your way in a subtle way while controlling people around you. That's manipulation. Not realizing that you being dominated made you a manipulator. It, it reciprocates itself. It, it continues to build upon itself, that sort of witchcraft. Are you, are you hearing me this morning, church? This is, I know this is stuff that we don't normally... This is like deep meat, okay? This is, this is, this is the, the meat of the Word of God. This is the reality. And sometimes you, you, you realize because... I'll put it this way. Typically, people who've had a very, very distant or cold or strong or domineering parents themselves develop these techniques of manipulation. Because that domination breeds manipulation. Now watch this. That manipulation breaks people down and causes them to repeat the cycle. And we don't even realize we're doing it. This is a witchcraft stronghold that needs to come down. If you know you're under this, if because you don't meet expectations of other people, you feel guilty. 
You know how, can I just, I'm gonna, can I get really real? You know how you're under a spirit of witchcraft? Is you're terrified to say you can't make it to the birthday party. Like, terrified, like you don't even want to deal with it. You're terrified to say, I, I can't do it that way. And these expectations constantly wear you down. Some of you are under that spirit of witchcraft and people are siphoning money off of you. They don't work. They don't put in their fair share. But they make you do it because we're family and you need to do that for us. That's your job. Oh, somebody just got set free. (laughs) Are you hearing me this morning? I know know that you're, you're all kind of looking at me like, this is deep. But it's the truth. And we need to break off from that. The way you stop it is, and again, you have to be careful in your marriage. And understand we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. You have to stop letting it intimidate you. Now, I'm not talking about the immature perspective where people get on Facebook and say things like, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Like, if, if that was true, you wouldn't have posted it on Facebook where everyone can see it. The reality is we have to come up against the spirit of witchcraft with a boldness in the spirit. And boldness is found in righteousness. You know how they overcame Jezebel with righteousness. Righteousness is ultimately, if you've studied the scripture, righteousness took her out. And, and if you become righteous, you become bold and you begin to pray against these things. Okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get off that one now. We were going to go into feminism, but let's just go into number four. Let's just go into number four, infirmity. Because it's not just women who do it, it's men too. It's both. Infirmity is a sickness of the body. Now, I hesitated to list this on, on, these, on this list of giants because I didn't want you to think that I see sickness in the same way I see witchcraft. Witchcraft you can choose to do or not do. Sickness isn't really your choice. But take this as an encouragement that that also is a giant that must come down. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, the Bible says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. That's a promise from the word of God. I know that people may tell you that's something that you have to accept. And really this is a tough one because if I'm being honest, people sometimes ask me some questions concerning uh, sickness. And they'll, they'll say things like, well, at what point do you stop praying and believing for the miracle? Certain, I don't, I, you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to mention it. But if you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. Um, there's some, certain re- recent Christian news. Um, the idea of resurrection came up. And there was a people who had the boldness and the courage to believe for a resurrection. And I want to say, first and foremost, to me, that demonstrates faith. But it was a tough situation. I cannot tell you how many people wanted me to go public on the record with that situation. I was, anybody and everybody was reaching out saying, what do you, we need to get your thoughts on this. We, they wanted me to post it. They wanted me to, and I just, I just, I, I wanted to wait and, and just see. I was like anybody else in this situation. And, you know, people were saying, well, at what point do you stop praying? And I, I thought, you know what? I don't think you ever should. Now, how this applies practically, especially in a case where you can see where it's going, you know, that, that I think you have to use wisdom and, and trust in the sovereignty of God. 
My conclusion personally, and this has been my conclusion for a while, is I pray for every person who is sick as if God is going to do it. But I trust him with the result. The reality is, those people who were believing for a resurrection, they got one. It may not have looked the way they want it to look, but they got it. And and the reality is, every sickness, every disease, every infirmity, every disability, every deformity, all of it, one day, will be healed. It's not a matter of if it will happen, it's a matter of when, and the timing of it really is the sovereignty of God. So I say this to you, if you're facing a sickness, you're saying, at what point do I just accept it as a reality? Well, you should have accepted it as a reality from the day it happened, because faith doesn't deny reality. I had a woman come up one time, and you, you might remember this, uh, a woman comes up, she's in the prayer line, this is what we did back when we did prayer lines, and she comes up and she says, I'm believing for healing. I said, okay, what's wrong with you? She says, nothing. I said, okay, but, but what, what's the issue? What do you want me to pray for? She said, oh, pray for my eye. I said, can you see out of it? She says, yes, I can. I said, okay, what's wrong with it? She said, nothing is wrong with my eye. And I was like, so you want me to pray what? What do you want me to pray? She says, well, just pray for my eye. Pray for my miracle. I said, what's wrong with your eye? She said, nothing is wrong with my eye in the name of Jesus. It went on for, I kid you not, like 10 minutes. And 10 minutes in, it's, it's, it's stopped, it stopped being that, ma'am, what do you it, Now it's, lady, listen to me. What is the, are you, are you physically ill in your body? Can you, finally it comes out, she was blind in that eye. She just didn't want to confess it. I'm thinking, the very fact that you're in a healing line is a confession that you're sick. <laughs> if you're claiming healing scriptures, that's a confession that you're sick. Faith doesn't deny reality. That's lunacy. But faith believes that reality can be altered by the power of God. And so, so you know, when it comes to sickness, I would say to you, this giant will fall. There, there will come a day. There will come a day where your walk will be normal. There will come a day you won't be in that wheelchair. There will come a day you won't wake up with that pain. There will come a day your vision will be clear, your hearing will be perfect. There will be no discomfort, no dis-ease in your body. Wholeness will come. Could it come on this side of eternity? Let's pray, let's believe, absolutely. But even if it doesn't, know that God still keeps his promises. I have to move quickly now. I have seven minutes to cover six more giants. Is it okay if I take a little extra time this morning? Okay. Number five. Oh, my goodness. Maybe you're, maybe you're going to change your mind now. Number five is mammon. Mammon is the, the love of money being mastered by money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew six twenty four, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, money, please understand, is not an evil thing. I pray every day, God, send more money in the name of Jesus. And if you don't pray that, I pray, God, send me what you would have sent them if, it was, if they didn't have the faith for it. 
It's not evil. You know how I know it's not evil? Because you work for it, like, every day. So, so money's not evil. I'll tell you what's evil. It's, it's that, 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 that evil, wicked, that, that earnest desire to be rich. That, 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 that perspective that materialism is all I serve God for. Some people, they treat God as if he should do things. I can't tell you how many times I'll get an email and say, Brother David, God hasn't done anything for me. I don't have, I'm not married. He hasn't given me my job. Why should I serve him? And I say, well, there's your problem right there. You think, you think, you're, you're saying why should I serve him, but you're talking like you're the master and he's the servant. Like he's supposed to do your bidding. And, and, and that's an issue because when it comes to this issue, Either money is your God or it isn't. Now, now I know we get upset, and, and people get upset with me for all sorts of things. If I talk about, um, for example, like here's, here's a real polarizing. I'm just going to say this. So I'll say this. This is polarizing, right? Donald Trump. Some of you went that way. Some of you went that way, right? There's no good way you can take that, right? So if I talk about politics, somebody's going to get mad. If I talk about sin, somebody's going to get mad. If I talk about getting healthy, I'm not going to even look down for this. Some, if I talked about gluttony or getting healthy, people get mad. That you should take care of your body, that no, not every day is a fiesta, that you probably should exercise. That's biblical. Okay, I talk about those issues and people start to get really upset. But you know what really angers people more than anything that I talk about? Money. Now, I don't know how I became Praise Chapel's unofficial offering guy. But I think, I think it has something to do with the fact that I've really decided to not care what people think about that anymore. Because, because I, I preach on sin, even though it offends some people, because it's the truth. I preach on getting healthy sometimes, because it's the truth, even though it offends some people. Why would I change that when it comes to money? And, and so the reality is this. You know you're a slave to money when you can't give to the gospel. You know you're a slave to money... When you're not paying your tithes, you're saying, well, well tithing is, is, is in the law. Okay, well, in the, in the book of Acts, they gave up everything. So you could choose Old Testament, New Testament. And besides, tithing came long before the law was given. There's a whole thing we can do on that. But anyway, and Jesus said you should tithe. Quote verbatim, that's what he said. Okay, that's in the New Testament. But the reality is this, people who say, well, you know, they'll look at guys like me. I, ha I get comments all the time. There was one, one person who watched, um, it was on YouTube, and they said, oh, what a lovely message. I was with you until you started talking about money, though. I'm thinking, oh, okay, so you came and you ate without paying. It's like going to eat. Oh, I love this food. Until, but once you brought that bill, now you lost me. I don't, I don't, I don't think, it, well, well, people say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it for the money. I don't. And, and here's the thing, I'm a scapegoat. People like to look at preachers and say, oh, that's, see, that's why. That's why I have an issue, because they're always talking about it. Well, my question is, why do you have an issue with me talking about it? What, what exactly is the issue? Well, I want to go to a church where they don't talk about money. Oh, great. You're going to go to a church where they don't have a building, where they don't have chairs. They won't even have crayons for your kids to, to color. They won't be able to afford anything, all right? So they, they won't be able to give to missions. They won't be able to, you know, Paul the Apostle talked about money. Paul the Apostle took an offering in two chapters of the New Testament. He really hammered it home. Jesus talked about giving. You know where Jesus stood during the services? He would stand over the offering. How would you like it if while you're filling out your envelope, I was standing over your shoulder going, I don't know. I think he could do a little more than that. But that's, that's what Jesus did. And he stops everything. He said, hey, 
He, imagine being the person who gave just before the widow. You get, drop money in, and then the widow gives, he goes, hey, now this lady gave. You see, the issue is this. The, the, you're, you're actually projecting when you have an issue with preachers taking money. You say, why, why, do they, why, do they, why do they want money so bad? Why do you want your money so bad? Why do you want your money so bad that it, it, it angers you and, and offends you when somebody asks you? Nobody's twisting your They're asking you, hey, support the church. Hey, support this cause. Oh, it makes me so angry. Oh, how, how dare they ask me to give to such a wonderful cause? Who do they think they are asking? How, helping people know the Lord. That's just, come on. You're angry that someone's taking an offering? You're angry that somebody's asking you, hey, let's get involved, let's all work together, pull our resources and spread the gospel? That, that angers you? What's wrong with you? No, really, like, you have to ask yourself that. And the only way you conquer this giant mammon is by giving. Here, here I'm just going to be straight with you. There, there's no debate about it. There's no back and forth. There's no theological claim you have. There's no one to blame. You can't say the preacher this, the preacher that, and what does he drive? Here's the reality. If you can't give to the gospel and you have trouble with it being discussed, there's something wrong with your heart. And the people said, okay, now you can play the Holy Spirit. Just elbow someone next to you. Mammon. It's a giant. has to come down. Mammon will keep you broke. Mammon will keep you focused on keeping what's in your hand so you can never reach out for what's in God's hand. And, and you're just stuck with what you have. You can be broke and you can be rich and still be a slave to money. So number, number six now, and I have to really hurry here. I'm going to take about, may I have ten more minutes? Who says I cannot? <laughs> who, who, who is so bold? Now, we'll take 10 more minutes, and then I'm going to do an altar call here. Uh, number six is, is habitual sin. And when I talk about habitual sin, I'm, I'm talking here about a sin of commission. Really, like things like fear and depression and, you know, and, and mammon, these are sins of omission, things that we don't do, or, 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 or tendencies and mindsets and state of beings that lead to things that we don't do that we ought to do. But what I'm talking about here now, I'm talking about the sins of the things that we do that we know we ought not to do. That thing you're battling with and trying really hard. Look, there's a difference between someone who is battling a sin and working with it. They're like, God, you got to help me with this. Every day they're crying out for deliverance. There's a difference between that person and the one who's just doing it to such a degree where now they have to hide it. and they're just, They want to keep it going. There's a big difference. You know that I can't tell you how many times I've heard a sermon, you know, uh, what, what's, what's, what's whispered in secret will be shouted on the rooftops. Get ready, God's going to expose you. And, and I get that kind of thinking, but do you know even Jesus taught that there's a, there's a protocol to exposure? That you start in the secret, you go address them one-on-one, -on -one, and if that doesn't work, you just get one other person, ring them, and then the group gets a little larger each time. My point is simply this. God is not trying to expose you to shame you. He's trying to expose you to free you. And, and you may fear like this mass exposure. That, that probably most likely, God, you know, God doesn't even want to do that because he takes these steps to get there. And now there are some people to save them from themselves. They've gone too far and it's just getting way out of hand. He's got to bring that in. 
But, but you don't realize that that thing you're doing, maybe, and I have to be careful with the way I say this because I don't want you to misunderstand. All sin offends God. All sin is something that you should repent of. It's something that will destroy you. Sin is very serious, okay? So please don't hear what I'm not saying. But you know, sometimes the enemy will, in your mind, make your sin much bigger than it actually is to keep you from going and getting help. And you think, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody pull me aside. They bring me, you know, into a room and they're like crying and sweating. And they're like, <sighs> so I'm like, so what's going on? I'm like, what, did you like murder someone? Like, and I'm not even saying that that can't be forgiven. Even murder can be forgiven. And it's nothing to take lightly, but that's the truth of the gospel. And I know people who, who've killed people who are now preaching the word of God. And God's redeemed them. Praise God. Someone say, well, well, we need justice. Well, often what our world calls justice is actually just revenge. And, and if you really want justice, then we all get what we deserve. No, what we want is grace. So, so, so sometimes we, we deal with these things. And I've had these people come to me and they'll say, like, oh, my goodness, I've, I've just been battling this. And they say it. And, the, and it takes them, like, 20 minutes to even say it. And I'm just sitting there, like, like hey, I'm going to set a timer. I'll be right back when you get to that part. And then I'll hear it and I'll go, okay. And they're like, and I'm like, yeah, we'll pray. We'll pray about it. We'll help you through that. And they're like, well, 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 that's it? Well, did you ask the Lord to forgive you? They're like, yeah. I go, did you go and you make things right with anybody you may have offended? Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Now I know to ask you this. Now I know to keep an eye out for that. And they go, and, and yeah, it may hurt. Yeah, and there may, be, and sometimes depending upon the level of the sin, may have some some things that come out that hurt other people. But you know what? Ultimately, you get free. And and this 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 is what I mean by that is that you can go 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 to someone before it gets to that point. Go to someone before it becomes something that will destroy your life. And even if it has got to that point, you don't realize that that. Again, you're afraid of, of, of getting this thing right. I'm talking about confession, by the way, which is a major thing that, that, that we need to practice more often. I, 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 I have what I call people that are like my vaults. And whenever something starts becoming an issue in my life, I go to them. And I tell them. And if they say a word to anyone. <laughs> shut this microphone off. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but I'm serious. I have people I go to. I say, here's what I'm dealing with, just as real as it can be. And, and, and the response, okay, let's pray through that. Let's, let's, let's work through that. And, and you work on those things. Take care of that little ember before it becomes an inferno. And even if it has become an inferno, you're not going to hide it much longer. That's what it's talking about when sin is exposed to where it's become this big thing. See, see you're flirting a little online. There's the ember. Go to, you, go to your wife and say, hey, uh, she'll probably slap you around a little bit. Say, hey, let's, okay, let's get a joint account now. And it's done. And you're good. You, 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 you repent, get some flowers, you work. You know, I got a little too flirtation, I'm sorry. But you, you don't, you, now that it becomes, but if it becomes an inferno, now you're having to make up stories about being late for work. You're going to have to say, well, I wasn't actually over there. And that, see, that inferno now is going to expose itself. It's not God saying, oh, let's shame him, pull his covers. It's God saying, that's what you wanted. And, and involve me, I'll help you put it out. But this thing's becoming too big. It becomes so big that it exposes itself. God's not in the business of doing that. Are you hearing me, guys? So let's, let's switch that mindset around. But, but in order to overcome this, you have to actually do something about it. Psalm 119, 9-11 says, How can a young person stay pure? Or anybody, really. 
It says, by obeying your word, I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Number seven is doubt. You know how Jesus dealt with doubt? He cast it out. In Matthew chapter 9, I don't have time to read it. Matthew chapter 9, when the crowd laughed at him as he was about to raise that little girl, reminds me of the way people were treating um, this last situation we all know about. They were la- some were laughing. But Jesus, what did he do? He, he, he put out doubt. He kicked it out. Think about Thomas and a touch of the Lord that he experienced. You know, people who deal with doubt often pretend like they actually need a, a pile of evidence. I can't tell you how many atheists I've talked to. And we'll talk about evidence, and I'll give them philosophical evidence. I'll give them circumstantial evidence. I'll give them, um, you know, the fingerprint of God and the DNA strands, and you name it. And I'm not talking about, like, like, like um, just frivolous things. I'm talking we get really deep into even what, what modern science says. And as much evidence as they're in their face, they go, well, I need more evidence. When you're a skeptic and you're doubt, doubtful, it's not the evidence that the issue. That's the issue. See, some people treat evidence like it has an accumulative effect. Like, like here's my cup of, and, it, and that emptiness is doubt. If you fill it enough to the brim, now all of a sudden I'm a believer. That's not it at all. It's not about how much evidence you have. It's about how you treat the evidence that you're given. So doubt is not based really usually on really the evidence. Doubt is just like faith, except it's the opposite direction. It's something you don't believe just because you don't believe it. And, and this is something even believers can deal with. I don't think God will do the miracle. I don't think God can do that miracle. I don't think God can give me that breakthrough. I don't think I can overcome these things. And that doubt is dealt with by a touch of God. It's that simple. You need a fresh touch of God. Maybe you've been in this thing 30 years. Maybe you've done it for 10 Maybe it's been a long time since you've really had a touch of God. You realize that you'll never get to a point in the spirit where touches of God don't come for you anymore? I know some people, like, like they act like, uh, oh, well, I don't get slain in the spirit. I, you know, I'm more mature now. Or I, I, don't, I don't respond with tears because I'm more mature now. Like, really, that, that just sounds like you got cold to me. Uh, you'll never get to a point where you don't need a touch of God. And you'll never get to a point where a touch of God can't profoundly change who you are. That doubt is overcome by a touch of God. Number eight is apathy. Colossians chapter 3 verse 23 says, Work willingly at whatever you do. Say whatever you do. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. You know, the thing about laziness and apathy is that our intentions give us a false sense of accomplishment. I want to say that again because I want you to get it. Our intentions give us a false sense of accomplishment. What I mean by that is this. I intend to do something good and that makes me feel good about myself, but I leave it at that. I, I intend, you know, I intend to work on my marriage. That's, that's a good idea. Um, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to start taking my wife on dates more. Jess, I intend to take you out more. She's going to, okay. 
You know what? I intend to work on my attitude problem. I intend to improve my character. I intend to get more involved in ministry. I have this intention. It feels good to have that, doesn't it? That intention always feels so good. You know, you hear a missions project. You know what? I'm going to give generously. Then the envelope comes to your hand. You're going, maybe, maybe just 10 will do. That should, that should help them out. And what the problem is we're so, we're so distracted by our intentions that we actually feel like we accomplished something for intending to do something. How long have you been intending to improve in a certain area? How long have you been intending to practice your skill? How long have you been intending to improve your marriage? How long have you been intending to get in the Word, get into prayer, to get involved, to help people, to become a giver? How long have you been intending to be a better Christian? You know, one day at some point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intend to something down in the future. And, and we imagine that somewhere down in the future, there's this perfect version of ourselves. Ah, that guy. I like that guy. That's a good guy. Perfect version right there. I'll be that one day. And, and, and we, we, we deceive ourselves. We give ourselves the sense of the accomplishment without ever having worked to get there. Apathy. Apathy. The, the comfort in the current circumstance. The, the idea that there really is no urgency to improve. Sometimes God wants to light a fire under us. And the issue is that we wait until things are falling apart before we actually start to take good on our intentions. Apathy is a giant that must come down if you're ever going to see everything that God has for you. Now, number nine... Number nine is cynicism, negativity, criticism, suspicion. You know, there's this thing that the media does. There's a little trick that they have, and it's, it works wonders. It works on almost everybody. It works on me, and I know about it. I'll tell you this, how powerful this, this trick is that they have. It's so powerful that I know how to do it. I know what they're doing. I know why they're doing something, but I'm still influenced by it. That's how powerful this thing is, that even if you know what they're doing, it still affects you. That's, it's insane. That's how powerful this is. Okay, so what the media will do, and, and then I'll show you what this has to do with cynicism in a moment. The media will do is they'll take an issue and they'll highlight it any time that it happens to give the false illusion to give the false sense that what you're seeing every now and then on their broadcast is happening everywhere all the time consistently. But you have to ask yourself, if it makes news, then it must not be happening all that often. Start thinking here. So there, there's such a thing as anecdotal and statistical. Now I'm getting a little technical here. Statistical means they actually took a measurement of everything that's happening and they can tell you cold hard facts. Here's what's happening and how often. Anecdotal says, well, one time I, uh, I, I know someone who, or in my experience, and so your experience becomes the lens through which you see everything. And, and the issue is what you highlight begins to dominate your reality. Whatever you highlight, you begin to imagine is the reality everywhere all the time. 
So if I want to make it look like um, there's a food shortage or, or some, something wrong with our food supply, and I'm the news network, I'm saying, hey, okay. And they pick the stories. They go, okay, this month, let's focus on, uh, let's, let's do something. Let's scare them about their, their food. They, that's literally what it's like in the meetings. Let's, let's make them worry about their, their diet and food. Maybe, they wanna, maybe one of their sponsors is a different product they're going to push, so they have to go take their competitor down. They say, okay, so they'll highlight a story. Okay, somewhere in Wisconsin, there was a cabbage recall. Okay, yeah, do that story. Okay, where else in the world? Oh, well, Cambodia, they had some issues. A boy died of a cabbage. Not telling you it has nothing to do with the same disease. Well, over here, this boy died of cabbage, and what they're doing is they're highlighting all these things, painting a picture, trying to make it look like the sky is falling, and you're going to go, I'm not going to eat cabbage. You can't have cabbage. What do you, oh, is that cabbage? Don't eat that cabbage. Be careful. Because right now, people are dying all over the world because they just highlighted that cynicism. I saw a gentleman one time. I won't give names. I just, you know, I, I, and what I do is, I'll just be honest with you, I blend stories of people. So it's like, this is like two or three people so that it kind of hides who they are. But, I, but, but, but it reflects the reality of what my experience has been in church. I saw a gentleman one time, he comes in, he, he finally started doing good. Like, he'd been one of those guys that had been coming for a long time and just sitting there. You know? And, and he, he, he would criticize everything, everything. I mean, like, everything. Why did they save a spot, parking spot for the pastor? I'm serious. That's the kind of stuff people get upset about. Just criticizing every little thing you can imagine. And... One day, God got a hold of him. He started doing really good. Like, you could see his heart changing. But the moment that cynicism came back into his heart, he started to go back to his old ways. You know what cynicism does? It, 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 it removes the grace of God for people. And we start to label all, every person's flaw becomes our excuse why we can keep ours. I see a mistake in that. Well, that was a leader, and he got an argument with so-and-so, and that was a, that's the pastor, and he got a little, he didn't shake my hand properly. I know they say it a lot, and that's not a joke. People actually get upset at that. Like, that's a real thing. It's an epidemic in the church world, apparently. And so these are all issues that we run into, and, and, and if we're not careful, we become negative, suspicious of everyone. Philippians 4.8, this will be the last verse, and I'm going to give you the last giant, and then this sermon must fall. Cynicism, Philippians 4.8, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on, look at this first one, on what is true. Okay, so it may be true that they have flaws, but here's the second filter. And honorable and right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And I'm going to go down here, okay? I want to be face-to-face -face with them. Cynicism will drown out, it will choke out your joy. It will destroy your joy. This, this constant nitpicking, nagging on people. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. The Bible commands us to have grace for one another. Bearing one another. Forbearing. 
Meaning, I don't allow my heart to be affected when I see something in the church, when I see something in people that causes me to go, oh, I don't know about that. Here's the thing about cynicism is it's based in reality. Like those news reports, it's based in reality. You're probably right on some of the things you criticize. You, you don't think I find flaws in, in, in the church? You don't think Pastor Omar looks around and sees flaws? I'm just being real with you now. But how do you keep your heart from that? How do you... Whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are honorable. Whatsoever things are pure. Whatsoever things are lovely. Think on these things. Some of you, you've been so bound in cynicism. You're, 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 you're negative. You're suspicious. You're grumpy. You don't need to live like that. That's another giant that must fall. Number 10 is jealousy. This is a giant that may be erected in your life, but in James chapter 13, verses, or chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, it equates jealousy with selfish ambition. And if you go all the way back to jealousy, the first real expression of jealousy was Cain and Abel. And you'll see that jealousy is actually the spirit that can often lead to murder. Not just physically, but in your heart. And, and, and see, when, when you're jealous, it doesn't matter how blessed you are because it's not about what you have. It's about making sure that other people don't have it too. And, and, and you may not act out in violence in everyday actual physical life, but in your heart, you wish they were dead. And, and yes, it actually gets to that point when you're jealous of somebody. Do you know how you overcome jealousy, that giant? You want the secret? I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you in 10 seconds. Here we go. Bless them and pray for them. Bless them and pray for them. I, I really, I mean, I'll have to do this. I'll do this on YouTube and we'll release it, okay? So that is it. Those are the 10 giants that have to overcome. Can you just lift your hands all across this room? Father, in the name of Jesus. Hey, thanks for listening to this week's message from Praise Chapel Paramount. If you want to stay connected, follow us online with Facebook and Instagram at PC Paramount or visit our website at praisechapelparamount.com.